I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. I'm Michael, joined here in the studio at Credo House, Edmond, Oklahoma, with uh, Tim and JJ and Sam. How you guys doing? Doing very well. Doing Good. Great. You, everybody, uh, up and ready for this uh, broadcast this morning? Yes, I think we are. We've all got Luther lattes, Nicene mochas. We've got some great coffee, and we are ready to rumble. All right. Well, I'm up here with my. Um, with my computer in front of me with Bible Works open. Do you guys use any type of Bible study software? I have Logos, but I really haven't learned how to use it yet. It's, oh, yeah. it's there on my laptop, but waiting for me to avail myself of it. Well, they're traveling around all the time training people on how to use that. That, that always kind of scares me one of you have to have a big crew that travels around to train people <laughs> how to use something. Yeah, I just know where the verses are myself. Yeah, well, I have to search them on. I don't know. I, I doubt I'd be a Christian anymore without Bible works. I mean, <laughs> so at least like I want to like it better time. than Lagos. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, no. Okay. I'm under obligation to say no. You're under contractual <laughs> obligation. Of course, all the, all the uh, Mac people from for the last 10 years will be screaming out, Accordance! Yeah. Accordance! I'm still yeah. using Accordance left over from my days in grad school, but... Yeah. yeah, Logos seems to be superseding it. Yeah. Well, and there are so many good, just free online resources that don't do everything that so many of the other ones do, but still give you a lot of good information as well. Yeah, I just use uh, BibleWorks for search engine. I mean, it's just so fast, and you know, that gets to the whenever you want to quickly get to the Greek or the Hebrew and the lexicons, and I've got all the plugins and everything else that. Is this a paid political advertisement yeah, that's here? Kind of making I, I, me uncomfortable. I do like Logos as well. I use that quite a bit. Uh, it's in my library. Uh, I will just. I just love having BDAG digitally, not having to lug that thing around anymore. Yeah. It's nice to have it on your computer. Well, I don't even that's buy right. commentaries anymore because I get them all in Logos. Um, I buy them from Logos. You know what? I'm. I love technology, but I just still love the feel of paper. And, and the I, smell. And I love the smell. Yeah, absolutely. And I love being able to underline. And I know you can underline elsewhere, and I know you can even dog ear digitally pages, but I just like bending that page over. That's you, just me. You can't underline with a ruler, though. You know what? I don't underline with a ruler because I think that that is almost uh, sick, I would say, almost. And, and, I, I, and, I, and, and I'm I probably the, near death because I'm not. <laughs> I underline everything. Well, I know that you and JJ both do, and you know, I just, I'm not a robot. I like to be able to look at my pages and see that a human did that. Well, you're the one who converted me over to Kindle, and now you're saying all this? Yeah, well, what I'm saying is there's a time and a place for digital delivery of information, but I think when you're really drinking deep from scripture and from from commentary wisdom, I just want to be able to underline without a ruler. I want squiggly lines. I want to underline circle stuff. I, I want it. I want it to be clear that I've been on that page. You're into sloppiness. Let's just admit. I am. I'm a sloppy learner. All right. Well, we're going to continue this uh, morning talking about uh, the charismatic gifts. Um, we're going to do the biblical arguments. I guess is what we're focusing on this broadcast, and maybe mm-hmm. a broadcast or two into the future. Um, 
we're going to be having quickly just for those of you who are locally we want to announce this we're going to be having mike lacona come what's the date that he's coming the date is tuesday december 13th and the format for this if you are local you can come to the credo house and meet mike lacona it's called coffee with scholars and so it'll be a book signing time from 1 to 3. Then from 3 to 3.30, we're going to be doing a, just a special broadcast with him. And then that evening, he will be coming back and giving his testimony. We'll have limited tickets available, so check up with our site on that because, you know, Credo House can't hold more than 100 people. That's right. and so, well, it, it can, but it shouldn't. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, many people don't know who Mike Lacona is. He is, uh, I think it would be fair to say, one of the leading experts in the world right now on the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. He, he doubted, uh, he, he was doubting his faith, doubting the resurrection, devoted five years of his life to study whether he can really, truly embrace the resurrection as a reality. Because Paul tells us without the resurrection, we might as well just close up shop and walk away. Yeah. And so uh, he, we see this as such a central tenet, and he is one of the leading men alive right now that can speak into the resurrection wrote, what, maybe a 2,000-page book, uh, academic book, work that just came out recently. And what we want to do is really just help deepen the faith of our city. And so we're bringing him here to the Oklahoma City area. And if you are not on our email list, please do go to credos.org and join our list because that's where we will send out a lot of the details of Mike Lacona coming. But what we want people to do, especially in the evening, is we want you to come if you are doubting the resurrection or if you just flat out do not believe the resurrection happened. But if you do believe in the resurrection, we want you to come, but we want you to bring someone who is doubting the resurrection or flat out does not believe the resurrection. Or just isn't a Christian. Or Yeah, just isn't a Christian. And so we want at least half of the people in the Credo House to legitimately be doubting or not believing the resurrection as a historic reality so that uh, with the, our hope would be that they could those people could speak directly to Mike Lacona and the Lord willing, uh, the faith of the resurrection would increase in our city. All right, well, good. <clears throat> Well, we are talking today about biblical arguments for continuationism and for cessationism. And um, I'd like to spend our time here. I don't know if we break it up and we talk first about biblical arguments for continuationism or just kind of mix it all together. I'm sure it'll probably get mixed up some. But uh, we've gone back and forth talking about defining the gifts quite a bit. And defining the gifts has been so important. We've had a lot of people that have said that this is waning a little bit, but much more people have talked to me and said, I'm so glad you guys are taking the time to define everything because that's one of the biggest problems that I have whenever I get into debates is that you don't really feel like the people that are in these debates, not that we're in a debate or a discussion where their differences are, that they don't really define what it is that they're talking about too well. And so that's what we've done so far, right guys? Uh, I, that's right. Yeah, I think Wittgenstein was right. Defining our terms should probably take about 90% of our time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it has. And I think we've defined at least the, the where we're at with all of the spiritual gifts and, and implied within the definition of the spiritual gifts has been, to some degree, some arguments here and there about their continuation or their cessation. But I think now we know what we're arguing for is continuing and is ceasing. 
Um, now, one of the things that I have, I think I've developed during this series on, is with regard to tongues. You know, and we talked about that last time a little bit. And so it's harder for me to look at this. And, and whenever I'm going through the biblical arguments for and against, I don't even really put tongues in there. In the back of my mind, tongues is kind of set aside as this little side one that, that it may be, may not, doesn't really have any bearing to me. And so one of the things that I want to ask you guys is that do you have to group all of these together? Can I be one a continuationist with regard to tongues and a secessionist with regard to prophecy, miracles, healing. I suppose you can if you feel like you have biblical warrant to Thank do you. so. Thank uh, you. No, seriously. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't. <clears throat> I don't think necessarily that there's anything that would require us to make this a package deal. In other words, it's all or nothing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> one of the cessationist arguments, for example, has been that even continuationists are cessationists with regard to one gift, apostleship. Now, that's questionable whether that's true, but they say since you are, uh, at least most continuationists would acknowledge that apostles no longer operate as a gifting in the present day, doesn't that open the door to contending um, that other gifts have ceased, maybe all of them? And my response to that is simply, uh, I'm willing, theoretically, to concede that any and all gifts have ceased if I have biblical warrant for believing that. Uh, I don't find acknowledging that one gift might have ceased necessarily uh, affects whether I believe the others have. So we could reverse that. Uh, As you say, maybe you want to allow for one or two of the so-called miraculous or supernatural gifts (laughs) to continue while the others have ceased. Um, I don't think that inherently there's anything objectionable to that. Uh, the question is, are there biblical grounds for drawing that distinction between, as you say, tongues and the others? Yeah. Um, now, it's concerning apostleship, just for a moment, I don't mean to get off track, but I've never really thought of that as a gift. I've thought of it as, a, as an office that is kind of gifted to the church in a sense, but not an individual gift that somebody has as if, you know, here's how you test to see if you're an apostle type thing. Because it'd be very difficult for me at that point to distinguish that from prophecy and and just pastoral care type thing. Yeah, that's, it's, that's a very disputed point. Um, if apostleship is a gift... And, of course, the, the, the reason why um, many contend that it is is based on two passages, Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul lists apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and then continues on throughout the gifts that include things like tongues and gifts of healings and so on. Um, if it is a gift, uh, you, you're put in a very interesting um, position because Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 14 pursue and earnestly desire the greater gifts. And when you say, well, which ones are great and which ones are greater? Well, most agree that um, uh, that when Paul lists apostleship first, if it in fact is a spiritual gift, that he would then be in the position of telling us to pursue apostleship. Mm. Well, how do you do that? Mm. I mean, either you are one or you aren't. Well, I tried to pursue it last night and nothing happened. It didn't work. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So, yeah, m- my inclination is to agree with you that apostleship is more of a commission or an office, but not a spiritual gift per se. Now, of course, that doesn't bear upon the question of whether apostleship continues into the present day. Uh, that's another 
matter entirely. We'd have to define what we mean by the term. And, um, of course, there are varying conceptions of what it, what it entails. Some think that since, in their way of thinking, it necessarily uh, involves the authority to write Scripture, that that in and of itself would indicate that it has ceased. I don't think that apostleship is, uh, necessarily entails that. But that's another matter. Now, would you say, because I guess I haven't ever, we haven't asked you this question, would you say that both of you guys, would you all say that the gift office of apostleship is no longer? Uh, no, I'm not prepared to say that. Hmm. Um, I am certainly prepared to say that apostleship in the sense in which the 12 plus Paul, Barnabas, Silas, maybe Timothy operated uh, certainly has ceased. Um, nobody functions at that level of authority, and certainly no one has the, um, the the commission or the calling of God to write inspired scripture. But it definitely but, becomes academic at that point if you say, I'm prepared to say they're continued, but I don't know if it has. It's just kind of like, well, this is not a practical... But the word apostle, as you, as you know, is used in a variety of different ways in the New Testament. Jesus is called the apostle in Hebrews, so there's that sense in which one is an apostle, and he's the only one, and they're the 12, because we know they are unique in that their names are written on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. They're ir- irreplaceable. Um, then there is an additional number of apostles that would include Paul and some others that are uh, so identified in the New Testament. But then we also know that apostle is used kind of in a small a sense, as in Second Corinthians 8, where Paul refers to those who are going to be entrusted with this gift, this financial gift to the saints in Jerusalem. They are called apostles. So could there be a level of apostles who were, uh, who were involved in church planting or who had particular um, influence and authority over um, uh, a widespread body of believers I think that that sort of apostleship might well continue. I mean, in Ephesians 4, we're told that the Lord has get granted apostles to the church until we all attain unto the unity of the faith, which, as far as I understand, won't happen until the second coming of Jesus. Yeah. So he seems to envision apostleship functioning at least until the second advent. But what I'm saying is that it's it's fairly academic the way you're talking about it because it's all contingent. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Uh, if it did, it's important. If it didn't, you know, it ceased. And and what what I'm getting at with this is that it's kind of like, well, you know, how does it play out? I mean, if it doesn't play out in the end, if you if you believe like we talked about beforehand, you're a continuationist, but not a uh, a practicing continuationist, maybe a more charismatic than with the gift of apostleship. What you're doing is you're saying maybe I'm a continuationist there, but I'm certainly not a charismatic because it's not finding its way into my everyday Christian life, my everyday Christian service, the the church as it functions, right? I suppose. But again, part of the problem is is that we have we have a, a wide spectrum here of claims about the apostolic. Um, we have people that will you can go to lunch with them and they'll pull out a business card and under their name it's the <laughs> apostle John Smith or yeah. whoever. Uh, and they are they, they quickly and easily throw that term around uh, in a way that I find highly inappropriate and really somewhat arrogant and presumptuous. Why, but, why do you think they are using that term? Uh, because I think it carries um, uh, connotations of authority and influence that uh, bolsters and boosts their ego. I think it's an I think it's an ego boost. But I look also at 
certain individuals in the body of Christ globally that I think function, if I can put it this way, function apostolically. Um, many of our listeners won't remember him. He died in 1997. But John Wimber, who was founder of the uh, Vineyard, the Association of Vineyard Churches, really functioned in an apostolic way as I look back on his life and ministry. Um, Terry Virgo, who provides leadership to New Frontiers, primarily based in England, has 500 churches globally, functions in an apostolic uh, capacity. Um, Some would say, although I'm sure he would... uh, 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 not welcome the label. Some would say Mark Driscoll functions apostolically in the way that he has birthed and gives leadership to uh, now nearly 500 churches in the Acts 29 network. So individuals who seem to have that kind of ecclesiological authority uh, that others readily recognize and embrace, and they have this capacity to uh, lead in, uh, in very successful church planting movements, which was very much involved in the exercise of the gift in the New Testament. Um, perhaps some of them are functioning in, in that capacity. All right, JJ, I'm going to put you on the spot in a weird way. All right, in a Get weird ready. way. In a weird is, way. Yeah. Okay, listeners, brace yourselves. <clears throat> what is the best argument for secessionism that you know of? Hmm. That's a great question. In the Bible, we're talking about biblical arguments. Now, well, usually when someone says that's a great question, it means they have a great answer and they're about ready to try. No, that's just, that's just so buying if, time. If, if, that's if, a if really we have a lengthy question. period of silence here, does that mean there is none? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. That could be. You can. You you have the right to say there is no good one at all. Well, uh, which will be insulting lots of people, including as myself. people like to say in the charismatic church. You know, there is no junior Holy Spirit, but there might be a junior podcaster here. And I know we—I've been brought on to serve as the weakest link, so I appreciate <laughs> you directing your stress test towards me. But um, no, I've really been wrestling with that because I—I I do believe that um, you know, for us to ad- ad- continue to advance this ironically, I, I have to feel the weight and the persuasiveness of, of views that I don't necessarily agree with. That's the only way that I think we have clarity as we move forward. I think you guys have been doing a great job of that. Honestly, I think it's hard for me to step outside of something that I've always seen in the text. Um, I, it would have been great if I'd had an experience of transitioning from cessationism to continuationism, but I've, I've seen the gifts operative. I've, I've, um, I've used the gifts from a young age. And so what I experienced intuitively, I see so clearly in Corinthians, um, it's hard for me. I'm, I'm still looking for the argument that really strikes me as most persuasive. I, I'm bad. Or just persuasive at all. I mean, <sighs> I can understand someone's perspective. If, if in a sense, if, if I bring a presupposition of cessationism to the text, I can understand how Acts sort of feels different how there can feel like there's a different tenor to the events that are happening almost as you mentioned in in your recent blog post things like Ananias and, and Sapphira that feel so distant from our own experience of the church age that that the events of acts can begin to feel very unique um, in church history and I and that makes a lot of sense to me what's hard for me to understand is how a cessationist reads first Corinthians and Paul's very very descriptive language um, of how these things should function that really don't have anything to do with sort of the wild and crazy events of Acts that I think we all agree are, are often distant from our experiences. Hmm. But Corinth isn't even necessarily a healthy church, 
but yet it's a church that's still functioning in these things. Well, let's talk for a moment about what we're supposed to take in Acts and what is normative, because we've defined this as continuing normative and to be sought out. Now, whenever we're looking in the book of Acts, and Sam, you said this yourself, you said that this is the study that really brought you to, uh, I guess, in a biblical sense, uh, to the charismatic side of things. One of you studied through Acts and went through it with your church, right? Um, there's more First Corinthians twelve through fourteen than it was Acts. I mean, Acts was certainly involved, but um, it was more the the First Corinthians that that awakened me. Okay, because. maybe I. I uh, but but no, I think it's a good point that you've raised is to consider to what extent the Book of Acts is looked at as a paradigm for church life throughout. The history, throughout the history of the Christian, yeah, because here's church. one of the things that I think is that we can we can focus upon acts like I did a lot in my uh, blog post, and we can give the wrong impression because I think whenever you're talking to somebody like me who is a non charismatic, and you're trying to push acts too much and to say you know here's what happened in acts, here's what happened in acts chapter two, which we'll talk about more and, and what Peter said, but you, you get into these just bizarre things that begin to happen. That that I I obviously you know whenever we talk about bizarre we just mean out of the normal not like we don't believe that they actually happen in Acts but that they're just weird they we don't experience them in any sense you know people like you said Ananias and Sapphira that is the kind of the iconic example of what in the world happened there you know and and, and you know we don't see that repeated in any sense. Uh, throughout the rest of the scripture and I've never seen anything like that happen where somebody you know lies to a pastor or lies to the the uh, church and just drops dead that scares me to death to tell you the truth it's actually a really powerful verse though if you're trying to raise money for your church <laughs> because then you say are you lying to me you don't have any money to give me right now you can't sell anything let's go to the book of Acts and come no, with your checkbook but Michael I, that was probably my rambling answer is there's things that we see a strong sense of discontinuity within Acts. So if Acts becomes the test case, then discontinuity does seem to be more Well, oh, I think that's good because I think from the the secessionists who are listening to this and the non-charismatics, they will say, good, you know, you've identified with a point that's very important that we can't uh, hurdle that uh, is hard for us to overcome. But how do we, uh, I mean, do you guys accept the distinction between prescriptive and descriptive material? Well, Sure. Let yes. me let me briefly say what that is for our audience. Prescriptive material being in, especially in history materials, but it's throughout the Bible. Prescriptive are those things that we look at and we say, this is what the Bible is calling upon us to do, to follow, an example sure. to follow. Well, and that's off the word prescribe. So it's yeah. like God is prescribing something that he wants us to do. Yeah, mandating us towards something. Descriptive is just simply describing. It's just what happened. And, you know, you don't preach a sermon on it and it doesn't uh, find its way into, you know, whenever, whenever uh, the guy, uh, they're arresting Jesus and, and somebody grabs a hold of the guy that uh, is is uh, covered uh, in a in a cloak and he runs away naked. You know that prescribes nothing. I hope you know for anybody in the church. We don't um, learn how to counsel from uh, reading about Job's friends' advice. Exactly. Sure. Or, or or where Paul asks for a coat. You know when he's in prison and he asks that he would be brought a coat. We don't think well that means I need to start a ministry to bring coats to people in prison. Yeah. Now that could be a, a fine thing to do, but the Bible is not prescribing. It's just telling what happened. Well, uh, let's get back to Acts and get a very obvious example that probably most of our listeners will be familiar with is the description of the early church in Acts um, 
2 through 4, where it talks about them living in a somewhat communal fashion, sharing uh, property and also evidently celebrating the Lord's Supper on a daily basis in those early days. Uh, that is descriptive. It's talking about how they lived and what they did, but it's not necessarily prescribing that as normative or morally obligatory upon all Christians of all ages. Mm. There, the, undoubtedly in Acts, there is a measure of what we call transition. Uh, there is a movement from uh, the old covenant age into the new covenant. The church is new and fresh, and given the unique cultural and uh, uh, economic and religious and historical and even political circumstances of that time, um, we recognize that they did things that would not necessarily be re- repeated in subsequent generations, especially our own. I think everybody who reads Acts has to acknowledge that. But having acknowledged that, um, to what extent are some of the other dimensions of church life in Acts indeed a, port- a portrayal of how God uh, n- operates on a normative basis or at least desires us to pursue. Well, I mean, even in Acts chapter 2, we don't say it's all descriptive. <laughs> Simply, we say that there are principles that are involved there that at this point, whenever Luke sums up you know, what's going on in the church, that he's actually saying these are good things that are happening within the church. And from that, we say the principles can be uh, pulled out. You know, they devoted themselves to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to to fellowship, to breaking of bread. All of those things are good things, and we would say that those are prescriptive in their principles, but not prescriptive in the exact way in which they were, um, you know, every day, you know, breaking bread. We do this very intuitively, don't we? Because that section in in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is constantly being used as a reference point of what it would look like to have a thriving body life. Life, but nobody reads 46 where it says that they attended the temple together daily yeah. and says, oh, no, you know, we've got to relocate to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple in order to fulfill this We just changed that to church. Yeah. yeah, or, you know, no one says we need to go to church every day, too. You know, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So uh, what, we're, what we're saying is in Acts, we've got to be careful. We, we're not um, trying to find everything that they've done in Acts and do it the same way, right? That's correct. How does that apply to this issue? I mean, can we use the book of Acts then? I mean, for... Well, I think we can, especially to the extent that the narrative portrayals in Acts are then found in the didactic portions of the epistles. Yeah. So, so for example, um, we read in, let's just take an example, we read in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost that Peter says, what you are witnessing is the fulfillment of Joel uh, concerning the prophetic, and this is, I, I think what he's saying, this is characteristic of what will happen uh, in the uh, New Covenant age. Uh, we have numerous examples of the prophetic in the book of Acts, obviously. Um, I think even of uh, Acts uh, chapter 11, I think, I'm, I'm, Acts 11, I'm suddenly going blank, or 14. Where was they're in the church at Antioch, and it says there were prophets and teachers present. I think it's Acts chapter 11. Um, or Acts yeah. 19, where the disciples of John prophesy uh, upon uh, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. So we look at that and we say, all right, they... The, the, the gift of prophecy was obviously very functional in that setting. Well, then I look into 1 Corinthians. Here is this church in Corinth, and Paul evidently uh, believed that the prophetic was 
to be a normal part of their daily and corporate life. Or in Romans 12, so there's another church in Rome in which he uh, gives instructions about how the prophetic is to operate. Or we read about the prophetic in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, or in Ephesus in uh, 1 Timothy 1, uh, and in 2 Timothy 1. So the question is, do we see in the epistles where we do have prescriptive norms set forth, examples of what we read in the narrative portions of the book of Acts. And if I find in the epistles that kind of confirmation, then I'm going to be on much firmer ground. So, for example, in Acts, um, we read that Peter's shadow would come across those who were sick and they would be healed, or handkerchiefs were taken from the body of Paul uh, and people were healed by that. Now, I know there are a lot of so-called Christian ministries today that try to re- repeat this and charge you um, uh, multiple dollars for one of those anointed handkerchiefs. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how they package a shadow. How do you send that off for a gift of $500? I'd like to figure <laughs> that one. But th- those are obviously rather unique and extraordinary apostolic um, powers that I don't see anywhere prescribed in the epistles. But I do see tongues, prophecy, healings, and other gifts of the Spirit uh, described in the epistles that reflect what was happening in the narrative portions of Acts. Yeah, I, I agree with Sam. Uh, Michael, I just I don't think this is a, uh, a path of, uh, of real, not effective argumentation or something, because, I mean, I think, like, if, if we saw Paul elsewhere describing the situation of Ananias and Sapphira and elsewhere was saying you know, people in Corinth, in Rome, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus realize if you lie about this, you will die. And and that is taught everywhere. We'd say, wow, okay, this is, he's at least describing the the atmosphere of the church of that day operating in multiple geographic areas. And I would say that, you know, as we look at, at the gifts being used in the New Testament church, I'd agree with Sam. I mean, it seems like we're seeing at least a description of the gifts being used in multiple geographic areas instances across several different uh, decades of the history of the early church. Although we I just somebody may be saying, so I'll say it first, we do have in 1 Corinthians 11 an example of something similar to Ananias and Sapphira where Paul refers to those who were abusing the Lord's table, some mm-hmm. of them getting drunk on the wine of communion, um, apparently those uh, wealthier individuals who were um, running over, running roughshod over the perhaps uh, the slaves who had come to Christ who would uh, appear at the meetings late. And Paul said, because you have neglected the body of Christ, because you have abused the elements of the Lord's table, treating them as common, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you even sleep. So he does seem to suggest that it's possible that people can fall dead under the disciplinary hand of the Lord for their unrepentant abuse of and their neglect toward the Lord's table. But he doesn't say, you're right, Tim, in this regard, nowhere do we find in the, in the epistles instruction to the effect, all right, if somebody is living in unrepentant sin, call a corporate meeting and uh, pronounce them dead and watch them fall at your feet. That's not the kind of, uh, uh, of expression we find of that in the epistles. So we wouldn't expect Ananias and Sapphira to be normative for subsequent mm-hmm. church life. Mm-hmm. 
I, I like when the apostles seem to give us sort of markers of what periods of history they're talking about. I'm still so struck, as I mentioned weeks ago, by 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, you know, part of why I'm writing to you, what I'm praying for for you, is that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. For what duration? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there was any fuzziness about what, he, what he's thinking of in the comprehensiveness of any spiritual gift, well, in that very epistle, he obviously goes on to Hold detail on to it. Hold that thought. Guys, next week we're going to pick up there because I want to I want to build on that some and build on this whole idea of what the apostles believed. You know, did the apostles believe that Christ was coming in their lifetime, and what implications does this have upon our discussion right now? So let's uh, continue this next time. Thanks, guys, for uh, joining us here. Thank you all for uh, joining us from from iTunes or from your podcast or from the Parchment and Pim blog. Continue to visit us, please. Uh, Please uh, go to uh, iTunes, write a review. We love to see those reviews, and it helps out as far as uh, getting this out to more people. And we believe in it. We believe in what we're doing. We believe it's a unique broadcast and uh, want uh, as many people to be engaged in theology as possible. So uh, until next time. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.